Last year, we ran an episode about face blindness. People who are face blind have trouble recognizing the faces of even their closest friends and family members. They're at one end of a spectrum of facial recognition ability. And today, we're going to talk about the people at the other end of that bell curve, the super recognizers, or people who never forget a face. Scientists only began to study super recognizers a little over a decade ago, and since then, they've learned a great deal about this extraordinary ability. They've also begun to explore, together with police departments and other security organizations and businesses, how super recognizers might contribute to police investigations and other security work. So how well can super recognizers remember faces? Can they really recognize a person whom they saw for only a few minutes many years ago? Are super recognizers as good as computer facial recognition algorithms? And can you train yourself to be a super recognizer or at least improve your own facial recognition ability? Or is this something you have to be born with? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. We have two guests today. Our first is Dr. Josh Davis, a professor of applied psychology at the University of Greenwich in London. Dr. Davis began his research career studying facial recognition ability and eyewitness identification. Since 2011, he has focused mainly on understanding super recognizers' exceptional abilities in this area. He's developed screening tests to help better identify super recognizers, and he works with police departments and other organizations around the world to explore the ways in which super recognizers can contribute to security work. Our second guest is Kelly Desborough. Ms. Desborough has always had an extraordinary ability to recognize and remember faces, but she didn't know that she was a super recognizer until about four years ago, when she took the online super recognizer screening test and received the highest score that researchers had ever seen. Today, she works for a company called Super Recognizers International, which trains and employs super recognizers to assist with everything from murder investigations to security at sporting events. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, Kim. Nice to see you. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to go with first names here to just to keep it uh, on, on a, a little informal basis. So, Josh, let's start with you. Um, how do you identify and define a super recognizer and how good does someone have to be at recognizing faces to qualify? On the whole, we sort of set a, a rather arbitrary standard for super recognition that people should be able to be in the top 2% of the population, achieving scores, should I say, on, on four primary criteria, short-term face memory, long-term face memory, simultaneous face matching, which is uh, the art of passport officers checking identity documents that the person in front of them is the person they say they are, and also spotting faces in a crowd. And we expect super recognizers to be in the top 2% on all four criteria. Kelly, did you always know this was something that you were very, very good at? Uh, how did you first recognize that you had an extraordinary ability that everybody else didn't have? I had no idea. I had no idea that I was doing anything different to anybody else. So I imagined that people could recognize a person they hadn't seen for 30 odd years that they'd only seen for a little while or or just notice someone from a, a small part of their face. It's just, yeah, I thought 
everyone was doing the same thing. And um, I was reading a crime novel and in that novel, the story tells of the detective who, who calls on the super recognizer unit at Scotland Yard to send them some help. So I Googled the term super recognizer and found one of Josh's tests, did the test and the rest is history. So yes, I had no idea at all that I had this skill and it turns out that it was a something quite rare. And do you have any examples of uh, from your daily lifetimes that you've recognized somebody from long ago or totally out of context? I suppose there's two ways to explain it. One is somebody you know vaguely and somebody you don't know. And, and that's the really big one is the don't know person. <laughs> but um, the example I would give is I was in a local town, at a parade, and I just in a big crowd, I happened to look over my shoulder and I saw a girl stood a few people behind me and I just glimpsed her for a split second. And in that split second, I knew that that was Amber, who is the sister of a girl I went to um, kindergarten with 36 <laughs> years prior. And she wasn't even my friend. She was my friend's sister, who I think I saw a couple of times when I went round to play at my friend's house. But it was just that split second. And I worked out that it was 36 years since I would have last saw her. But again, at the time, I didn't know I was doing anything weird. I thought that was normal. And I would bound up to people and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. It's hit. Hi, how are you doing? And they would just look at me blankly as I was a complete loon. <laughs> and um, and I would say, it's me, it's Kelly. And thinking, you know, they've clearly forgotten who I am and I'm an, a forgettable type of person. But I guess I guess an example of the, the way a super recognizer works that illustrates it best is um, I was given a the um, image of a known predator that we were looking for at a sporting event. I, I looked at his face for maybe two or three seconds and that imprinted it in my mind. And I went into the crowd and on that day in that crowd, there were 42,000 people there and I was able to find him and, and alert security to his presence there. So that's what a super recognizer can do. Well, that just sounds miraculous. So, um, Josh, what do we know about how super recognizers are able to do this? Do we have clues from brain imaging research or other studies? We think, first of all, that's probably inherited. Um, at least face recognition ability seems to have a genetic component because if you run twin studies, as some researchers have done, they find that identical twins tend to score far more similarly on face recognition tests than non-identical twins. And as, of course, identical twins share 100% of their genes and non-identical twins share less of their genes, therefore, that seems to illustrate that we, we do have a genetic component. And in fact, we have done some parent and child testing, and we do find a correlation between a parent's ability and, and their child's ability, and super recognizers score slightly higher than uh, sorry, the children of super recognizers tend to score higher than the children of controls. So, so that, there's that genetic link. There does seem to be from face recognition um, something to do with your experiences as well. Uh, and a, a very obvious example here is that most people are better at recognizing faces of their own ethnicity than of other faces. And it seems to happen with ages versus other ages as well. Uh, and we, we've we found that um, we had one super recognizer in a study in particular. We, we asked super recognizers to recognize baby faces. It's sort of the opposite to, to what uh, Kelly is describing. Uh, and we found that um, 
adult super recognizers were better at, than controls at recognizing baby faces. But in our sample, we coincidentally had a, a, a doctor who worked with babies all the time. And her scores was the, were the only ones who were actually higher on the baby face test than the adult face test because she was used to faces. So there is something driving it with experience as well. And that seems to be the key factors. Kelly, you talked about recognizing somebody you hadn't seen since kindergarten, who clearly was now an adult. Is that common for you that that you it, some you know somebody as a child and you see them thirty five years later and you know it's the same person even though they've radically changed? Yeah, it, it appears that um, time doesn't seem to really play a part in this. That the facial features must stay similar enough for me to be able to recognize it, but it can there can be twenty thirty more than that years apart or they were a child now they're an adult and I can still tell tell them apart so yeah that I can also um recognize people who've drastically changed their appearance so they might have facial hair completely different hairstyle different hair color so that you know those it seems like the facial features will always remain imprinted and and I can I can pick them up can I add to that? I mean, the very first research on super recognizers used uh, a before they were famous test. This was by um, researchers in Harvard. And effectively, they showed uh, famous people's photographs when they were children. And the super recognizers are always far better at doing that type of test. We quite often use that as a demonstration when I'm uh, um, giving talks to super recognizers or other people uh, and you'll show I, I don't know a child image of of say britney spears and the super recognizers you they've all got their hands up almost immediately identifying britney <laughs> far quicker than everybody else and and you know people with average ability quite quite often just sit there going, no one can do this uh, because it's impossible. So something is happening. And we've used an unfamiliar type of project as well. Well, you'll show an adult face with three babies. And one of them is the adult. And, and super recognizers tend to score higher on that one. And yet they've never met the babies or the adults. So, Kelly, um, are you aware of what you're looking at when you look at a face? Do you focus on anything in specific or do you just get like a boom image of the whole face? Yeah, the latter. I'm not looking at details. I just know it's a split second. It's a decision that just pops into my head. So, yeah, I don't know how the science works and Josh might be able to elaborate or I think they're still looking into it. Right, Josh? But, um, but I feel like I see the whole. I see the shape. I see a shape. So um, I, I can get people from the backs of their heads too. So it, that, that tells me that I'm seeing a shape of someone um, rather than the facial features. Uh, and also I can tell them from just a small part of their face or if they're wearing a, um, a mask, I can tell them from their eyes. So the, the masks haven't caused a problem uh, in, in identifying people. So throughout the pandemic, it hasn't impaired your ability to basically do your job, right? No, no, it's not as easy. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, there's still that instantaneous recognition if you do see the person you're looking for. I could add to that that we, we have done research. We found super recognizers were better than controls at recognizing faces with face masks on, um, whether they were familiar with them or 
unfamiliar. Uh, and something else that uh, Kelly said that strikes me was that we have done research using EEG as well, measuring brain activity. And we also found that um, super recognizers seem to have a, a greater spike of activity very early in face processing when they saw a face that was familiar to them in comparison to controls. And that might link to what Kelly said about sort of instantaneously being able to recognize as someone familiar to them as well. But that, that does need some uh, replication. It was published in Cortex, which is quite a nice journal to uh, get published in. So you know which part of the brain or parts of the brain are involved in, in recognition at this point, Josh? That particular research was EEG, which measures activity. And if, if you like, it's not very good at geographically mapping the areas in the, in, in the brain that is active at the time. Um, but other people have done fMRI studies, which is far more accurate at, at um, uh, measuring the brain. And there's an area that seems to be associated with face recognition called the fusiform gyrus. And when that area gets damaged, for instance, people often often develop prosopagnosia, as you introduce the topic, uh, and become face blind. So there is a, a lot of evidence from fMRI as well. It's more active when people are viewing faces. So Kelly, I have to ask you a question on behalf of our uh, producer, Lee Weinerman, who is the mother of identical twins. Do identical twins look different to you all the time? Completely. Yeah, I have identical twins in my family and I spent a lot of time with them um, when they were younger. So when they were toddlers and I saw them as two completely separate faces. And again, I wish I'd have known why I was seeing that at the time. But no, they they just again in a glimpse or a side view, uh, they would just I would know which one was Kirsty and which one was Lacey. And and uh, yeah, it, although I'm I fully appreciate how similar they look, obviously, but I can completely tell them apart. They're just the differences are glaringly obvious to me. Well, let me ask you both this one: Do super recognizers have better than average memory in any other areas of life? Well, I can answer that. We have used object memory tests and some other sort of visual processing tests, and they tend to be slightly better than controls at these other tests, suggesting that they do have superior, you know, memory for visual things in general, but actually the differences between controls and, and super recognizers are far greater when it comes to faces. And perhaps we found voices as well. We've done some recent research finding that they, they tend to be slightly better at voices, which might suggest that it's something about human identification, human recognition, rather than purely face recognition. Uh, Kelly's always described her ability to recognize people by other things from the back of the head sometimes. So it, it's not just about the face. And you just mentioned voice recognition as well. Is that another burgeoning area of research right now that people can just tell who, who someone is based on hearing their voice? Yeah, so I have a, a PhD student, Ryan Jenkins, who's been researching voice recognition. We find that people with super recognition ability for faces tend to be better at voices as well, but it's not 100% by any means. It's a small proportion. Um, and so that's 
research is ongoing. Uh, one of the things is developing tests to actually measure this ability is, is always a bit harder than it perhaps you imagine when you start down this PhD progress. So a few minutes ago, Josh mentioned that there's a genetic component to this. So Kelly, are there other people in your family who have this ability? I think that my my mum, my mother, uh, might have it. So she's she's pulled some stunts <laughs> that I think <laughs> that would suggest that uh, she she found a, a phone, an iPhone on the on the floor in a public garden, and she picked it up, and it was somebody was calling it, and it showed the face of the person calling, and she knew she'd just walked past that person. <laughs> So she took it back to them. So I said, "Mum, I think maybe something's going on here." <laughs> so yeah, I would say she's a high. She's got a high potential there. <laughs> so she hasn't taken the test. She hasn't. She's probably too scared to fail. <laughs> I'm going to encourage her. <laughs> so is facial recognition ability something you can train yourself to do, or or even to just get better at? Some researchers have tried to teach people to be better at face recognition, in particular in perhaps the sort of uh, identity verification role, such as passport officers, because that's so important. Um, so perhaps you can improve slightly the ability to perhaps do a face matching task by asking people to focus on features or other aspects of the face. It doesn't seem to improve face recognition in general, this type of training scheme. So I'm afraid your ability seems to peak at about 30 years of age, keeps improving beyond the teenage years, but then it, there's a long, unfortunate, slow decline from that point on. Well, then perhaps it's lucky, Kelly, that you also are, are a professional photographer, <laughs> <laughs> which is also a, a visual field. Um, do you feel that it's linked in any way to your super recognizing ability? And do you only take portraits? No, I do all sorts of commercial photography, so I don't think it's linked, to be honest with you. Um, there's all sorts of different people from different walks of life, different skills that are super recognisers, and I can't see a pattern there. Um, I put a lot of attention to detail in my work, and I am meticulous, and that helps with my job, but I don't see a link. I don't see a link there. Well, speaking of jobs, your other job, as I mentioned in the intro, was that you work for Super Recognizers International doing investigative and security identification work. What kind of organizations do you work with and what do you do for them on an average day? Yeah, I, I work for law enforcement agencies, police departments, security, private security companies, um, and we, we do all sorts of things from, as you mentioned, murder investigations, assault investigations through to live events where we're on foot doing you know covert operations looking for people in crowds so there's a, a a variety of ways in which we can apply the the skill we can produce facial comparison reports for people who are trying to prove the identity of somebody um so it, it's very varied and and I I'm also working on quite quick moving investigations such as missing people um, trafficked and exploited children. Uh, I work for the NCPTF, which is the National Child Protection Task Force over in America there, who do an amazing job um, investigating missing children and, and, and rescuing them. They're amazing as a global force that are volunteering together to, to help. 
and I'm one of their, what they like to call mutants. <laughs> they have a team of all sorts of different <laughs> skills and I, I'm proud to say I'm one of their mutants. So um, yeah, that's that's the sort of thing we're doing. <laughs> and and have, have you found missing children yourself? Yeah. That must be very, very satisfying. It is. I'm, I'm able to be given some faces of children that we know are are being exploited. We have the predator as well. I had a, a case where we had a predator and two children uh, linked together. I was able to find um, links to them online and we picked them up around six hours after I identified them. So my my leads will be given to the police department who are investigating that. So obviously I don't just say it's them, go get them. They will have to do a thorough investigation. So I'm just the lead. And then it saves them days, weeks, months of searching and trawling. I can get them results really quickly. Then they can follow those leads. And, and in that case, it's six hours before they were the kids were rescued and the predator was arrested. So, yeah, we're getting some brilliant results. We've had some great results in murder investigations too, where my evidence has helped to narrow down timelines for the police and, and prove premeditation so I can create a nice package of evidence for the prosecution. In recent years, we've heard a lot about artificial intelligence, facial identification algorithms, and how they're being used in everything from social media to policing. Well, there are obviously some ethical and legal questions around this, but just as a purely practical question, are super recognizers as good as AI algorithms or are they better? So the last big piece of research really on this was it was done in the United States and they recruited super recognizers controls also forensic facial analysts and the best algorithms at the time um, as identified by the National Institute of Science and Technology in the USA and they found that the super recognizers were operating at the same level as the best algorithms and far better than controls but what they also found, which I think is really key here, is that actually if you combined the decision-making of a super-recognizer with an algorithm, accuracy was even higher. And one of the reasons is because algorithms make mistakes that a human would never make, and humans make mistakes that an algorithm probably wouldn't make. So therefore, you're removing those errors that are probably unique to both and getting better outcomes. Does AI have the ability that, that Kelly described, which is she can tell people from seeing the backs of their heads? Almost certainly not. I don't think because AI has to be trained with images for it to be able to perform these tasks. And I don't think there are any databases of faces from the back of the head to train AI. So that's how it works. You have to sort of throw into the mix hundreds, if not thousands of faces for AI to be most effective, a bit like humans. And if you haven't got those images, then humans are going to beat AI every single time. And we can also um, deal with really low quality images um, you know, really pixelated images aren't going to deter us. And also, you know, like I said, masks, facial hair, bits and pieces that might throw an algorithm off, we can we kind of override those. So I think I, I am a great advocate of facial recognition software and I enjoy working with it. I get some of my best results when I team up with guys that use facial recognition software. So I think putting the two of us together makes a superpower. 
So is it your view that people who check passports, say, in customs, um, should, should we be testing people for their facial recognition ability before they get jobs like this? Oh, absolutely. And they do in some countries. You would never want someone with face blindness, prosopagnosia, being a passport officer because they just could not do the job. I'm not necessarily sure that you need super recognizers for that job. But what you want is people who have above average abilities in those sorts of roles because they're far more likely to make a correct identification but they're also far more likely not to make a wrong identification than people with average or lower ability. That's key as well. Kelly, does the company that you work for advocate for this? I mean, do you consult to you know operations that maybe could use some sort of a, a test for their employees? Absolutely. We team up with lots of different companies to, to assist. Um, we work for a company that do um, assess passport photographs and ID photos. So yeah, it's definitely something we can apply and help with. And uh, we do identify super recognizers through the testing and then we put them through our own training courses, which uh, will teach them all about the law surrounding image use. It will enhance their skills with behavioral analysis as well if we're actually out and about. So we can enhance skills around super recognition too to, to make a really rounded super recognizer that's able to go out into the world and, and use their skill for good. So some of our listeners might not be aware that um, in, in your country, and you're both in England, um, that there are closed circuit TVs um, pretty much everywhere, right? You, you folks are on camera all the time. Um, it's a little different from the U.S. where, you know, we're very sort of hinky about that, that concept. Are there ethical issues surrounding uh, what it is that, that you do if for example, trying to find criminals? I mean, do people in, in England feel like their privacy has been um, invaded? So they do worry about privacy in terms of computerized face recognition systems, definitely. But no, I don't think anybody worries about super recognizers because, if you like, they epitomize what a, an old fashioned police officer should be able to do. They know all the criminals. You see it on cop shows. There's nothing strange about super recognizers within policing identifying criminals and, and, and people like that. Everyone expects it. It's the algorithms they are more suspicious of, definitely. And it's a way of life for us being on camera. I would far rather that my whole country was covered in cameras. And if something happens to me or one of my loved ones, that it's going to get picked up and we're going to have some evidence to work from. The number of cases that are solved through surveillance footage and, you know, come to a conclusion much quicker and and, and more accurately because of that, I'm, I'm a strong believer that we should stick cameras everywhere. And I certainly have them all over my house. <laughs> I don't. Actually. I, I think for me personally, I'm protective of my privacy, but I do agree that in some areas you do want cameras. You want them in town centres and uh, airports and places like that, train stations, travel centres, um, and they should be scrutinised properly. So my understanding is that the cameras were installed because there was the thinking among law enforcement that they would be a deterrent, but it seems that they're not, that a lot of people will just blithely go about committing crimes because they figure there are tens and thousands and millions of these images. No one's ever going to find me. Uh, do, do you feel that um, you, the public, at least in the, in the UK, is aware of the fact that you have been able to crack a lot of cases? 
Yeah, I think it, it's been very important. Um, the super recognizes successes that have been in the media. In fact, my PhD was on the, the way that faces are used in court for identification purposes. Uh, and at that time, they weren't at all. Um, there was a lot of cameras around and nobody was ever lo really looking at them. It's only later that they started properly scrutinizing the images, making sure that they actually try and identify people committing crimes on camera. And that breeds success. More success, you get more criminals um, identified. And so much so that, you know, my work has transferred to other countries around the world. We've, especially at the moment, we're identifying uh, a lot of super recognizers within German police forces, super recognizers in India working in identity verification, creating lots of jobs there for people working in sort of roles, checking um, identity documents for for the government and other organizations. Um, we're not really working in America, <laughs> in the USA, <laughs> as of yet. But uh, who knows? I'm on my way. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Kelly, I mean, it sounds like you really appreciate this this ability that you have, but I'm wondering if you ever feel that there are drawbacks. I mean, do people try to fool you? I don't see any drawbacks. I think it's a relief now I know I'm not being stalked constantly because, of course, if you're walking around a shopping mall and you see the same person over and over again, you start to think, I'm being followed by this person. But essentially what's happening is I'm just recognising the same person in the same shopping mall with me. It's, it's nothing worse than that. So there aren't really any drawbacks, to be honest with you. It's very useful. It's a bit annoying for people who are around me when I keep telling them that that's the guy in the film 20 years ago that was an extra in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know. But no, it, it's I embrace the skill. I'm so delighted that I can use it for good, that I'm seeing results that are meaning things to, it means something to families who have lost somebody or who are fighting for justice. So it's just an honour that I'm able to translate this skill into something useful for society. So Josh, um, last question, um, where is the research going next? Well, that's a, that's a big question. We would like to do some more brain scanning research to try and understand exactly what's going on uh, in super recognizers brains to and then perhaps from that we can understand how to better apply their skills in different workforces for whatever reason because we don't really know where we might end up going in in the future um, for the best use of super recognizer I'm, I'm i'm probably more of a an applied psychologist than a theoretical psychologist more interested in seeing you know the practical aspects work like that Kelly does, how else can we use Kelly's skills to, you know, help society in general? Are there places that, that we're missing the, the use of super recognition, Kelly? Do, what, what are you looking for in, in your company? Are you expanding? Yeah, we certainly are. Our passion is to help law enforcement. That's what we would like to do is to be able to go to law enforcement agencies and help them to identify super recognizers within their ranks because there are going to be hundreds of them. And it would be fantastic to think that we could identify them, help to train them to know their skill better and for them to be used within those police departments for the better. So that's that's our passion. Super Recognizers International would love to get out there and, and get amongst the law enforcement agencies to help them identify their own that's where we think we'd get the best results for society for. 
Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. I think you're both doing extraordinarily important work, and I thank you for it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Kim. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, please leave us a review. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Condian. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.